Good morning. Good to see everybody today. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 7 as we are starting a new chapter in our series that we've been in in Romans for a while now. Last week we talked about the importance of knowing the context of anything that we read in in the Bible. And so before we get into chapter 7, I want to kind of review what the context of this whole book of Romans is. Paul wrote this letter, obviously, to Christians who were living in Rome. A church there was, at that time, made up primarily of Christian Jews. There were some Gentiles there, but it was, you know, primarily Christian Jews that made it up. They're the ones that started it. The church is believed to have been started when some um, Jews by nationality and by religion who were living in Rome went to Jerusalem to celebrate the annual Passover and uh, day of Pentecost. And they were part of those who were there the day that the disciples came out of that upper room full of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 were saved when Peter stood up to the crowd and preached the, co- the gospel. And so these Jews that were there for that occasion, they got saved, they received the Holy Spirit, and they went back to Rome, and they began meeting and formed the church there in Rome, who Paul is writing this letter to. Now, there was still some confusion as to how this Jewish religion was to mesh with Christianity. Some believed that they still had to follow the law of Moses, and so there was debate about whether or not they had to do that, and if they did have to continue to do that, being born a Jew, then what about the Gentiles? If a Gentile, a non-Jew in Rome was led to Christ, would they have to follow the law of Moses as well? This is one of the main issues that Paul is addressing in this letter. As a matter of fact, the word law is the second most used word in the book of Romans. Paul's already talked about it in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And we've looked at that, but here in chapter 7, he's addressing it yet again. So let's look at what he says here. Um, We stand in reverence when we're singing worship to God. How much more should we stand in reverence to God's Word? So if you would do that with me as we read Romans chapter 7, beginning of verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do welcome you here in this place, but we don't do that in a way as if we are in charge of what goes on here and we uh, have a say in what you do, but God, we, we welcome you here as a sign that we recognize your sovereignty and your authority and your will that you want done here, God, and um, 
just offer ourselves, Lord, to do what you would want to do in our hearts. Speak to us, Lord, and open our ears to be able to hear you, that we may be changed in ways that shows the world that you are alive, that you are real, and that we may glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, the law Paul is referring to here is, of course, all the rules and regulations that were given to the Israelites through Moses in the Old Testament. From the book of Exodus all the way through the book of Deuteronomy are 613 rules that make up the Old Covenant law. And every one of those rules are born from and summed up in the Ten Commandments. And so for simplicity's sake, every time I mention the law, know that I'm essentially referring to the Ten Commandments. And if that's what I'm going to be referring to, then it'd be good for us to refresh ourselves as in what those Ten Commandments are. So they'll be up on the screen here. These are found in Exodus chapter 20. First of all, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make an idol for yourself. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day, which means to work six days and then rest on the seventh. Honor your father and mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which means don't lie about them or spread false rumors. And number 10, you shall not covet what someone else has. This is God's standard. This is what he requires to be right with him, to be accepted and in good standing with him. And even though there are only 10 rules or laws here, they pretty much cover any wicked behavior that mankind is capable of committing. Any sin that you commit is a break of one or more of these Ten Commands. From the little white lie that we think is so innocent to the most heinous of deviant acts that man can commit. They are all covered here in these Ten Commands. That's why I said all the 613 rules of the law are summed up here. So this issue that Paul's addressing was whether or not a Christian still had to follow these Ten Commands and all the other rituals and observations that go along with the law. And to tell you the truth, the debate still goes on today. And you've got people on both ends of the spectrum. You've got people on one end who believe, yes, God does still hold us to this standard today, and therefore we need to try as best as we can to follow these rules, and where we are unable to follow them, then that's where God's grace comes into play. And then you've got people on the exact opposite end of the spectrum who think God's grace today means that we shouldn't even be recognizing or reading anything in the whole Old Testament at all. That is all obsolete. All we should focus on is Jesus and the New Testament. And then, of course, you've got people somewhere in between. And some believe that it should be a mix of the, yes, there's some law, but yes, there is also some grace, which truthfully is a more dangerous place to be than any of the other positions. Galatians, the whole book of Galatians actually addresses the danger of mixing law and grace. 
reading this text in Romans 7, it's pretty clear that we've been released from the law at least on some level. But what exactly does this mean? Well, this is what we're going to look at this morning. And before we do, I got to tell you that knowing where we were going to be in chapter 7, I had in mind a particular direction that I assumed I was going to go with this, and I was expecting to have to repeat a lot of what I've already said and what Paul's addressed about the law in the previous chapters. I've probably read this text here at least ten times just this week, just sensing that maybe God wanted to, to, to show us something else, that maybe there was something that we didn't cover before. And uh, during the worship service Wednesday night, we were all in here singing praises to God. I had a, a revelation that made me see what it means to be set free from the law in a whole new light. And I got to tell you that it impacted me to the point where tears came to my eyes. And for a second, I nearly took off running in the aisles just celebrating what Christ has done. I want to warn you, if this stuff gets any better, you just might see me do that. (laughs) This is exciting. And verse 4 in particular hit me in a way that it was as if I was hearing this announcement being made for the very first time. It's the line in verse 4 that says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And I'm going to share with you this morning what the Holy Spirit revealed to me in that. And my prayer is that it will impact you the way that it did me Wednesday night. But before we get into it, there's some things I first want you to understand about the law. First of all, it is a good thing to be set free from the law But that does not mean that the law itself is a bad thing. I believe it's important for us to understand this. I mean, it would be easy to kind of have the perception that if the law is something that Christ came to set us free from, then there must be something wrong with the law. There must be something bad about it. I mean, if it wasn't bad, then why would we need to be set free from it? Well, the law itself isn't bad at all. In fact, Paul says here, In verse 12 of chapter 7, he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I mean, just look at it. These ten rules here. I mean, these laws are perfect. Like I said, they cover everything. No man could ever on his own come up with a more perfect set of of rules. And in fact, every just law that man has come up with has its foundation in these ten commandments. There's a joke you may have heard about these scientists who they were atheist scientists and they believed that they could create something on their own, that they didn't need God. They had enough intellect and enough skill and ability on their own where they could create something. They didn't need God. They didn't believe he existed. And so they made this big media hype about it and got everybody together and they were going to make something without God's help. And so they first gathered some dirt together to use as their base for what they were going to make when this booming voice from heaven came down and said, whoa, wait a minute. 
Get your own dirt. (laughs) They realized they couldn't make anything. They couldn't start with anything that God hadn't already created. They just couldn't escape his creative power. So the God, uh, God's law is the same way. We cannot come up with any just and right law on our own that God hasn't already established in some way in his law. But just because we are saved by grace rather than saved by our obedience to the law does not mean that we should diminish God's law in any way. And I know it's easy to do that, especially the way God has really been highlighting grace to the church as a whole. I know that I've had the tendency to maybe uh, look at God's law in a way that really isn't right. But I've come to realize that David actually was right in saying five times in Psalm 119, I love your law. Folks, God's law is glorious. It is right, it is perfect, it is holy, it is pure. And so then if that's true, then why did we need to be set free from it? To understand that, we first got to know God's purpose and giving it to us in the first place. We talked about this a little bit before, but it bears repeating. First of all, the law was never given as a guide for us to know how to live right. Now, I know that sounds strange to some of you, but hear me out in this. I mean, we would naturally assume that the law exists to show us how to live a life that pleases God. And, I mean, it does show us that, but that's not God's purpose in giving it to us in the first place. And most of us have been taught, if you want to live a life that pleases God, here's how to do that. Follow these ten instructions here. And you will have a successful, God-pleasing life. And people have been trying to do that ever since Moses brought these laws down from Mount Sinai. And for the last 3,500 years, that has been attempted with absolutely zero success. Why? Because that's not the purpose of the law. In your notes there, if you're following along in the bulletin, I've listed three main reasons God gave the law. Number one, the purpose of the law is to show us just how incapable we are at living up to it. How incapable we are of meeting God's standard on our own. He gave it to show us how sinful we are. And he gave it ultimately to show us our need for Jesus Verse 7, it says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Next point, the purpose of the law is not to point us to how to live right, but to point us to Jesus. You may remember back in verse 20 of chapter 5, Paul says that the law came in so that sin would increase. And here in verse 8, he says that the, the command, you shall not covet, produced in me coveting of every kind. 
That shows just how depraved we really are apart from Christ. That knowing what God's law is then compels our depraved nature to rebel against it. That's how messed up and wicked we are. And without God's law stirring that up in us and pointing that out, we wouldn't really know that. Here I have a bottle of water with me. Water is probably the best thing that we have on this earth. I mean, life cannot be sustained without it. It refreshes, it cools, it quenches, it hydrates, it washes things clean. And I can't think of a a, a more perfect substance on earth than water. I mean, it even says it right there, aquafina. Some fine agua. Spanglish, I think they did right there. So it says aqua, not agua. There is absolutely nothing wrong with water in and of itself. But what happens when you take something as pure and as life-sustaining as water and you bring it into contact with hot grease? It causes an explosive reaction. I'll actually show you what happens. There's grease being heated right there to its flashpoint, and there's a small manageable flame, but when water is thrown on it, that's what happens. The water caused the fire that was burning just a little bit to burn all the more, to increase all the more. That's exactly how the law works. When something as pure and good and holy comes into contact with our depraved nature, an explosive reaction occurs. Look at verse 9. And after that, he said, I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, I was kind of like that small, manageable flame. But when the commandment came... Sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Next point in your notes. The law doesn't cause sin. It exposes the sin that is already there. It magnifies it. Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin will become utterly sinful. Like through the water, the flame would become utterly flammable. It's exactly how the law works, and that's the purpose of it. Now then, once the law does expose our sin and our depravity, once it fulfills its purpose, here's what it does next. And even if you haven't been following along in the notes there, I want to encourage you to fill these seven blanks in right here because this is going to be the crux of what God is saying to us, I believe, this morning. Number one, once your sin and depravity and your helplessness before God is exposed, the law condemns. 
Condemn means to say in a strong and definitive way that something is bad or wrong. The law declares that before a holy, perfect God, we are condemned by our sin. The law shames. It accuses. It frustrates. What do I mean by that? No matter how hard you try, no matter how bad you want to, the law proves that you will never be good enough on your own. No matter how hard you try to follow those rules, you'll never be able to make it. And it is so frustrating to see where you want to be and what you want to achieve right there where you can even touch it, but never being able to get there. That is a frustrating way to live. And when you realize that, the next thing it does, it disheartens. Disheartened means to cause to lose hope, enthusiasm, courage. The law also mocks. Apart from Christ, every time we look at those commands, we are reminded of just how much of a failure we are. We are reminded every time of our guilt and our shame. We're reminded that we will never be good enough as if the law itself were standing there mocking us. And then finally, it curses. Paul talks about the curse of the law in Galatians 3.13. Now then, here's where things begin to turn. Look at verse 1 again. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? And then he gives the analogy of being bound to a spouse as long as that spouse is living. When Paul wrote this letter, he didn't separate it in verses and chapters. Those were added hundreds of years later. And so what he's saying here in chapter 7 flows right out of what he was saying in chapter 6, which is all about our identity. Chapter 6, as we looked at last week and the week before that, was all about our old self being dead and our new self in Christ being alive to God. And so taking that context into account, he's saying that the law has jurisdiction over our old self. Our old self was bound to the law. We were bound to those seven things that we just filled in there. You were bound to condemnation, bound to shame. You were bound to not ever being good enough and bound to the curse. I'm telling you, those of you in here who have not received Jesus for salvation because you somehow think that you're good with God just based on your own intellect and your own ability or just because you have gone to church your whole life, this right here is how God sees you. This is how you stand before God. The law condemns you before Him and says you're not good enough. Your intellect won't make it. You're in trouble. This is the standard that God is holding you up to. And you do not get a pass on good effort and good intentions. But the good news of the gospel, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may be bound to another, to him who was raised from the dead. 
In Christ, you are no longer bound to those things. You have been set free from the condemnation, from the shame, from the accusation of the law. You've been released from its curse. It no longer has power over you, which means that it can no longer cause you to sin even more because that sinful nature that was aroused by the law has been killed in Christ and has been replaced by God's divine nature to the point where we no longer have to look at a list of rules to know how we're to live our lives because we now have the spirit of Christ himself living inside of us that serves as our guide to know how to live. Here's what hit me Wednesday night. The good news that we have been set free from the law isn't just good for our eternal security. It's not just about so that we can go to heaven one day when we die. The gospel has meaningful, tangible ramifications for our life right now, and especially this. And this is what I get so excited about, because the power contained in that announcement in verse 4 is enough to change The way we live right now, it is enough to set us free from the things that still try to bind us up. And here's what I mean by that. Some of you in here today, you know exactly what it means to feel like that you're not good enough. Maybe that came from a father or a mother or a spouse who seemed to always be pointing out the things that you did wrong way more than they did the things that you do right. And you've lived under constant criticism. And as hard as you've tried to please them, it was just never quite good enough. You know exactly what it's like to live from that frustration that I was talking about. And to be honest, it's more than likely the root of the depression that some of y'all are struggling with. That feeling of not ever being good enough and feeling like a failure is rooted in being bound to the law. And I'll prove it. How many of you, when I listed those Ten Commandments up there, felt this tinge of guilt and heaviness? I mean, all of us should have to some extent because that's what the law does. But for some, it's worse than others because it touched on a wound that has been there for years. If you have been wounded by a parent or a spouse who has made you feel like you are never good enough, then looking at the law is like pouring salt directly into that wound. Some of you still feel ashamed and condemned by your past, and looking at the law is just like pouring salt on that wound as well. For those of you who can look at the things that we listed there in your notes and feel some of those things rise up in you, there's some of those things there that you still struggle with, listen to me. You have been released from that through the body of Christ. You have been released from that through the body of Christ. 
Through Jesus, you have been released from not ever being good enough because in Him, you are good enough. He achieved for you what you could never achieve for yourself. Your joy and well-being is not found in trying to please someone who will never be pleased enough. Your joy is found in the delight of your heavenly Father who looks on you with complete and total satisfaction because you've been clothed in the blood of His Son. I mean, if you think about it, who cares if you can't be good enough for someone else when you have been made good enough for Almighty God? When you truly realize that God delights in you, the fulfillment of knowing that should keep you from ever trying to be a people pleaser again. Who cares if you can't please someone else when you've been made pleasing to the Father? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It'll set you free. Anytime I talk about God's forgiveness that we have in Jesus, almost always somebody will come up to me afterwards with the comment, well, I know that God has forgiven me, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. How do I forgive myself for the things that I've done? The failure to forgive yourself is an indicator, first of all, that you're being awfully self-centered rather than Christ-centered. You still see your identity in something other than in Jesus. You're identifying yourself with that part of you that God's Word said has died with Christ. And if you can't forgive yourself, you're still being bound to the accusation, the condemnation, and the guilt of the law. If you're one of the many who has struggled with forgiving yourself, then answer me this question. If you have died with Christ and all your sin along with it, what is there for you to forgive? If you have been made to die to condemnation, to accusation, through the guilt and the shame of the law... What are you so focused on? One of the reasons I believe that we struggle with forgiving ourselves, to be honest, is because we think way too highly of ourselves. What do I mean by that is this. You know, sometimes we get shocked at the things that we do and we're appalled. I can't believe I did that. The truth is we should be shocked if we really understand our depravity and that's what this is if we fail to forgive ourselves is because we don't realize just how depraved and wicked and messed up we are apart from Christ because if we did what would we would what we would be shocked about is that we didn't do something worse than what we did tell you the truth and it's only God's grace that you didn't what you should be shocked at is not what you have done. What you should be shocked at is what Jesus has done. That despite your absolute depravity and wickedness, that he offers forgiveness for that. You should be shocked at his grace. You should be shocked at his mercy, not shocked at what you have done, but what he has done. Here's the deal. If you just can't seem to forgive yourself, then either you haven't really yet died in Christ or you don't believe it. 
Colossians 3, 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you have trouble forgiving yourself, then the truth is you just don't believe that verse. So here's what I want us to do to close this out today. I want everybody to take those notes there in your bulletin or just look at these seven things up here on the screen that the law does. And I want you to look at everything listed there and see if there are any of those that you still struggle with today. Do you feel condemned for something, ashamed, frustrated, disheartened, mocked, feel like you're not good enough, feel like your whole life is cursed in some way? If so, then I want you to hear this announcement that is being made to you this morning. The announcement from God himself through me and his word, you have been made dead to those things and have been bound to Jesus. I'm going to say it again. You have been made dead to those things that you are struggling with now and have been bound to Jesus. Fill that in in the last point there and keep that with you. In Christ, I have been made dead to all of this and have been bound to Jesus. Let it sink in. Believe it. On the cross, Jesus was condemned in your place. He took your shame. He took your guilt. He was mocked. He was disheartened. He was cursed. And then all of that died with him in that grave. He arose victorious over it all, never to bear those things again. Jesus is the only one who could never be accused, condemned, cursed, shamed, or mocked by the law because he is the only one who has fully fulfilled it and lived up to it. To be in him means that you are credited with that same thing. Like I often quote, 1 John 4, 17, it says, As he is, so also are we in this world. Not as he is, we will be one day in heaven. No, this part right here is for now. As he is, so also are you in this world. Receive the freedom that he has purchased for you with his precious blood. Let's pray. God, what a glorious thing. Something again, God, that just seems too good to be true. That's why we have such a hard time really believing it. But again, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and reveal this to us. Lord, I pray for those who are still bound to these things, bound to the accusation and the condemnation, bound to not ever feeling like they're good enough, bound to shame and guilt. Lord, that the truth of what you have done would set them free from all that once and for all. Lord, I am shocked at what you have made available to us. 
I'm shocked that you would love us so much in our sin and our wickedness. Lord, just blow us away by your grace and your mercy this morning to where all of that that the law still tries to hold us to, God, would just wash away in the light of your love. Lord, I pray that today, August 16, 2015, would be a defining moment for someone in here this morning. That they can look back on this day as that's the day that I was set free. Something that's bound them up for so long. God, I can't make that happen. Only you can. So I'm begging you, please come and do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.